Galatians 4, 21 through 5, 1. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve, and uh, we are continuing our series through Galatians. Before we dive in, let me just say happy Father's Day. Um, For those of you who are fathers, good job, you did it. For those of you who have fathers, good job, they did it. Congratulations. Um, And uh, I hope today is a day of joy for you. I know that these days can be um, days of great joy. For those of you who have wonderful relationships with your dads and and they were good examples and invested in you and loved you, um, that's awesome. And uh, I hope it's a day of celebration. I know these days can also be frustrating and sometimes painful because sometimes our dads um, let us down. I mean, the reality is all dads are flawed and human, aren't they? And so what that means is is no matter how, even if they're doing the best they can with what they have, a lot of times um, it leaves gaps and that can leave pain. And so um, sometimes dads are absent, um, sometimes dads are even abusive. And so on a day like today, I would point you to the redemption and, and really the restoration we have in Christ, right? God is the ultimate image of the Father. God loves us unconditionally. He, he will um, ultimately not only uh, love us and forgive us, but change us for our good and his glory. And so as we celebrate Father's Day, let's celebrate our, our heavenly father and um, let's learn to honor and love our earthly fathers um, in the power of redemption, right? So happy Father's Day, and um, I hope it is a day of joy for you. This morning, we are at the conclusion of Paul's doctrinal argument in this letter. This, is, this letter um, has been um, a real, like, the, we, we're just coming out of the deep end at this point. Paul always tells us what we're supposed to know before he tells us what we're supposed to do, right? He says, believe this, now go do this, because that's the way it works, right? Paul's never about just go do the right things. He always starts with, you need to believe the right things, because if you believe the right things, you will do the right things. And if you're not doing the right things for the right reasons, um, that's, not a, that's not a solution, right? And, and in fact, that's the very heart of the problem in this letter, is you got people showing up at this church and, and um, they're basically trying to get people to do the right things for the wrong reasons or the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Um, but they're showing up and they're doing it and um, they're doing it based on their pedigree. Paul came into Galatia, preached the gospel, laid down his life for these people, shared about Jesus. People became believers. A church started. He invested in them and then, and then they became, in a sense, his spiritual children. And then he left. And after he left, these, these false teachers came in. These guys came in that, that had a, a different message. 
And they were saying, yeah, 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 Paul, that's right, man. You need to believe in Jesus. That's a good start. But you need to add to your faith obedience. It's not enough to just believe in Jesus. You need to add to your faith obedience if you really want to be a real Christian. And by the way, we're not just going to tell you to obey. We're going to tell you how that to obey, what, what that looks like. And for these guys, that meant circumcision and obeying the law because these guys were Jewish teachers. And, and in coming in, they appealed to their pedigree. What they said was, man, we're, we're the teachers from Jerusalem where the mother church started. We're Jews, man. That means that, that we have this long racial, um, cultural history with God. And, and that makes us an authority. And, and that means that you need to follow us. This morning, um, Paul is going to to look specifically at that issue of the pedigree and that issue of, of their, their story and unpack it a little bit. Every culture has stories that helps it um, explain their values, their prejudices, um, their ambitions, right? If you think about our culture, the American culture, I mean, who hasn't heard about um, George Washington and cutting down the cherry tree? You know what I'm talking about? You know, you're all like, yeah, yeah, I remember that story, right? He cut it down and somebody said, did you do that? And he said, yeah, I did it, right? I don't understand. What the, why, why, right? What's the point of that story? Why do we even know that? Right? He cut down a tree. Who cares? He told the truth. Yay. Right? But I think one of the reasons that story gains so much traction, it keeps being told over and over again, is because it underlies two really fundamental values. Not always practiced values, but values in our culture nonetheless. We do value honesty and we do value hard work both of which are cultural values. Not always, right? I'm not saying we always live out our values, but culturally those are things that we would at least say we, we value, right? What about the Boston Tea Party? We all know about the Boston Tea Party. You know, the Boston Tea Party really was not that big of a deal. You know what I'm saying? Like there was a boat and it had tea on it. These guys dressed up as Indians, got in there and threw the tea into the water. All right. Yeah. Why do we know about that? right? There, were, there was actually all kinds of things happening all up and down the East Coast at different harbors that were, that were kind of doing the same thing. It was, it was a rebellion against taxation without representation. It was a way for them to basically say, uh, we don't want to pay taxes to a general government because we don't have uh, representation in that general government. Why is this event so memorable to us? Why is this, of all of the hundreds of important events that took place in our history, why does everyone know about the Boston Tea Party? Well, I think it's because um, it actually, again, speaks to our values, right? That speaks to who we are, this, this sense of independence. There's this sense about us that we are fighters for freedom, that we're not passive. There's something about the American identity that says, you know, we're not going to be the ones who just lay down and take it. We're not going to be the ones that just let you abuse us. We will rise up and defend our freedom. That underlines cultural value. That's something that resonates with, with us as Americans culturally. We all have stories that, that speak to and represent our, our culture, the things that we value. For the Jewish people, few stories were more important to their identity than the stories of Abraham and Moses, two, two huge figures in the Old Testament, right? The, the Jews would basically say, we are sons of Abraham. And as sons of Abraham, um, we have a huge heritage, right? Um, God called us out, right? God blessed Abraham and his descendants, and we are the descendants of Abraham. That's a huge part of their cultural identity, right? We, we were set apart by God for God. We were given a promise of land by God. Um, we are the chosen people of God. And, uh, and so there was this great pride in being a, a descendant of Abraham, that they could trace their roots all the way back um, that, that they lived in Jerusalem, the, the promised land, the very land that God had, had 
promised them, right? In addition to that, they, were, uh, they would say that we had great pride in, in their association with Moses. Moses was a great prophet in, in Jewish history, in the Old Testament. And, and God gave the, the Mosaic Covenant, right? We, we often associate that with the Ten Commandments, which is a very simple representation. Um, the Mosaic Covenant is, is much bigger than that. But they would say, look, God gave us the law through Moses, and it makes us unique among the nations. We're the only ones that have this law. It's what sets us apart and makes us different. It's what makes us better than others. And this nationalistic and spiritual pride influenced the false teachers that came into Galatia. They came in in this pride and basically said, you need to be like us. And because we have this heritage, you need to listen to us, right? We're the ones that get it right, so you need to be circumcised like we're circumcised. You, you Gentiles, you that weren't born in Jewish homes, you need to be circumcised. You need to obey the law. You need to start following these um, spiritual calendars because that's what we do and you want to be like us because we're close to God. Then you'll be on the right track. Then you'll be true descendants of Abraham like us. And, and you'll be set up to actually receive the blessing of God. So Paul's goal in our passage this morning, and it's a little complicated, we're going to unpack it uh, but, but Paul's goal is to step into their story and deconstruct their understanding of it. He's not going to underline it. It is a true story. He's not, what, he, what he's going to say is the story is true, but your understanding of it is wrong. So he's going to deconstruct their understanding and basically say, look, this is the real um, thing that these stories teach us. You're missing the point. In fact, you see that in verse 21. In verse 21, he's like, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? He's like, look, you guys, you're so familiar with these stories. Do you even pay attention right? Are you just spouting this stuff or do you actually pay attention to what you're spouting? Because it doesn't make sense. And so he's going to unpack and say, look, I'm going to give you a little history lesson. And in that history lesson, um, help you see the real point of these stories. Now for us, that means we need to do a little bit of a history lesson as well, because Paul's going to assume that his readers know all this stuff. So he's referring to Hagar and, and Sarah and these kids and all this stuff, assuming that his readers are familiar with the stories because they would have been. Uh, we have a little bit less familiarity today, and so we're going to actually unpack some of this story to make sure that, um, that you guys can understand what he's talking about. Abraham is a remarkable figure in the Old Testament. And um, at the heart of our passage this morning is his relationship with two women, Hagar and Sarah. Sarah was his wife, and uh, Hagar was... Um, Sarah's handmaiden or a slave in the household and, um, and the tension that comes um, from this. And so I'm going to unpack a little bit and tell you a little bit about this story. In Genesis chapter 12, we, we get actually in Genesis 11, we get introduced to this guy named Abram. Abram is a name that means great father. He's married to Sarai, a name that means princess. And um, Sarai can't have kids. She's, she's barren. And, and those of you who have struggled with infertility know how painful that can be. It's an incredible challenge. In that culture, at least, it was even harder because in that culture, kids were a sign of blessing from God. And so if you didn't have kids, people looked at you and basically assumed you, were, you had done something wrong, that you were sinful or defiled in some way, that God was withholding his blessing from you. You were somehow rejected by God because you weren't able to have kids. And so this was a great burden on Abram and Sarai because they couldn't have kids. They lived in this place called Haran. And um, when we're introduced to them in Genesis 12, they're already fairly old. Um, Abram is 75 and Sarai is 66. And God shows up to them in Genesis 12 to Abram and says to him, hey man, I chose you and I'm for you. I'm going to be with you and you're going to follow me, right? He gives them some pretty audacious promises. He says, look, man, I'm going to give you a son. 
right? I know you've wanted one. I'm going to give you one. And that son is going to become a great nation. And all the nations of the world will be blessed through your seed, through your son. It's an audacious promise, huge promise of blessing to a man who at this point was um, unable to have children and um, honestly would have been simply obscured and forgotten by history. He was kind of a nobody. And God said, I'm going to make you great because I chose to love you and, and I'm going to fulfill this promise to you. I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you a homeland. I'm going to give you a place of blessing. What I want you to do is trust me. I'm giving you a promise and I'm faithful. So what's the response that I'm looking for? I want you to have faith. I simply want you to respond in faith. Trust that my promise is good. And you're going to start by going. <laughs> Leave Haran and start walking that way. So he did. He packed up all of his stuff. They took all of their possessions and, uh, and they set out and started, and started walking. Okay. Jump ahead to Genesis 15 a couple chapters later. It's actually a jump ahead 10 years in the story. Okay. Abram is now 85. Sarai is now 76. And at the beginning of Genesis 15, Abram is complaining a little bit to God. He's like, hey, God, I know you gave me this promise, man, but it's not happening. You know, the biological clock is ticking. We're not getting any younger here. Uh, right now, my, my only heir is this dude from Damascus, right? Not my son. What's happening? You know, I'm getting a little nervous. And God basically reiterates his promise. God says to him, hey, I promised to give you a son. I'm going to do it. And in fact, let me give you a little bit more, man. Not only are you going to have a son that turns into a nation, you're going to have so many descendants, it's going to be like the sands of the seashore or the stars of heaven. Countless, right? The, the impact your line will have is going to be huge because you're going to have all these kids and it's going to impact the course of the entire world. The entire world will be blessed through you. Right? Not only that, I'm going to give you an inheritance. I promise you're going to get this land, man. I'm going to give you a place of blessing, right? A, a, a lineage and a place of blessing. And then in Genesis 15, we have this incredible covenant ceremony. God not only promises it, but then enacts a covenant to make it sure. So, so the promise is made sure, not just by his promise, which is good because it's God's promise, but by a covenant, right? And now in the way the covenants worked in the Old Testament, um, it's like a signature on a contract today, but a little bit more weighty, right? When you sign your name on a contract, you're legally bound to something. Uh, when you went through a covenant ceremony, you were legally bound, and, and the consequence of breaking it was death, right? Because what ended up happening, when you, when you entered into a covenant ceremony, is you would actually take an animal or a series of animals. You would cut them in half and lay the pieces apart from each other, so you had a bloody trail right down the middle. It's kind of nasty right? But what ended up happening is these two people would walk through the bloody trail. And what they were saying was, if I don't live up to the covenant, may this happen to me. May I be killed like this. So it was a way of, of binding themselves before God in a solemn commitment, a covenant. What's so cool about the covenant ceremony in, in Genesis 15 is that God puts Abram to sleep and then he passes through the parts, which essentially means I'm giving you a promise and I'm the only one on the line for it. It's unconditional. I, I'm the one who's promising. There's no part for you except to receive. I promise I will bless you. You don't have to do anything to receive it. And you can't do anything not to receive it because honestly, it's based on my promise. And when I promise something, it's good. 
And Genesis 15 is an incredible foreshadowing of the cross of Christ, where God became man and actually died. He passed through death, not symbolically, but for real, for us, dying in our place, living the life we should have lived and dying the death we deserve to die, and then rising again a new life so we could be forgiven. God basically saying, I am so committed to blessing you, I'll pass through the death that you deserve. I'll take the consequence of your disobedience so I can forgive you. So Genesis 15, God reiterates His promise and foreshadows how He's going to ultimately fulfill that promise through Jesus, by the way, who is the seed of Abraham, right? Jesus is the ultimate son of Abraham, uh, which we've talked about in previous messages. So Abram goes back to Sarai and says, hey, man, uh, uh, God reiterated His promise. Sarai is not convinced. She's looking at herself, her own body, her own age, and she's like, you know what? I'm not quite sure I can get pregnant. We've been trying for a long, long time. Maybe God wants us to kind of help him out. You know, a little bad theology getting in there. Maybe, maybe God helps those who help themselves. Isn't there a verse in the Bible about that? By the way, there's not. That's heresy. It's not true, but that's kind of where they're coming from. It's like, all right, it looks like it's impossible. It's like, it looks like it's going to happen. So I'll tell you what, Sarai says, I'll let you take my handmaiden, my servant, my slave. This was not an uncommon practice in the ancient world. Um, it wasn't biblical, it wasn't right, but it was culturally accepted. Um, when you had a man who had a, a large household, he would often have a wife and he would have concubines or a harem. Um, and the children from those concubines um, had certain rights in the household, and they could, in fact, become legitimate heirs of the household if that's what they chose. And so their solution was, we're going to help God out by actually having a child through Hagar, an Egyptian slave woman who serves Sarai, and, uh, and that this son will rise up be grown, and, and be raised as our child, be raised as our son, and he will become the heir. So they're basically trying to fulfill God's promise for him. <laughs> they are, in a sense, acting in the flesh. That's very simply a way of saying in human wisdom. They looked at a situation that said it's, it's humanly impossible. Um, God doesn't really understand. So in human wisdom, they would just say, we're just being realistic here. That promise is just not realistic, right? So we're going to act in a way that makes more sense. And so um, Hagar becomes um, the mother of, uh, of a son named Ishmael. Abram at this point is 86, Sarai is 77, and uh, they now have a son in the household. Jump ahead to Genesis 17, two chapters later. Abram is now 99, Sarai is now 90. God shows back up. And basically ignores the fact that they've tried to solve the problem on their own and says, hey, by the way, I'm still going to keep my promise. And Abram's like, really? Yeah. Yeah, you're still going to have a son, and Sarai is going to be the mother. I promised it. It is going to happen. My plans have not changed, right? And in that moment, he renames Abram, great father, to Abraham, father of many. And he renames Sarai to Sarah. The renaming of people in the Bible often speaks of covenant relationship. What he's saying is, I'm giving you an identity. 
I'm giving you an inheritance. I'm giving you a gift. And I'm renaming you so that that name speaks of my promise, right? You're also going to have a sign that's associated with this covenant, this promise. And that sign is circumcision. So Abraham, in, a, in, in, in what I can only imagine, was an act of tremendous bravery at 99, was circumcised. Uh, every male in his household, everybody's squirming. And from that point forward, every Jewish male born on the eighth day was circumcised as a sign of the promise of God. Um, and so God reiterates it, gives a sign of the, the covenant. And, um, and then in Genesis 21, Abraham is now 100 years old, Sarah is 91, a miracle occurs. The impossible happens. Sarah is well past childbearing years, right? Which I can only take to mean she's past menopause. Her body has shut down. It is no longer physically possible for her to become pregnant. She becomes pregnant. The impossible happens. She becomes pregnant and she gives birth to a son named Isaac. Now, why did God wait so long? Why did God give a promise and then wait decades to fulfill it? Well, it's a fairly obvious answer, I think. It's because he wanted to wait until it was impossible. He wanted it to be incredibly clear that this happened purely because he promised it would happen. Not by chance, not by human effort, not as a result of anything, but God fulfilling his promise. He waited until it was impossible to show that with God, the impossible is possible. He will fulfill his promise. He is not limited by our limitations. He is not limited by our weaknesses. He is not limited by our helplessness. He rises above all of it and fulfills his promise. And so Isaac is the son of promise. The only thing that explains his birth, his very existence, is a miracle. God made a promise and fulfilled it by giving Isaac to them. His name means laughter. Um, Dual meaning there. When Sarai first heard that she was going to have a son past childbearing years, she laughed, and it was a laugh of derision. It was a laugh of, of, of um, doubt, a, a little bit of sarcastic bitterness there. But after Isaac was given to her, her laughter was turned to joy, absolute gratitude. And so Isaac is a word that means laughter, and it speaks of that fulfillment of, of God doing what we expect is impossible. God showing up where we least expect him. God fulfilling his promise because he is always faithful to his word. Now, sometime later, we're not exactly sure how long, Sarah looks out and sees um, Ishmael and Isaac interacting. Uh, we know that, that Isaac has been um, weaned but we don't know how old he is at this point. It would place uh, Ishmael um, somewhere in the teen years. Whatever happened there, the, the, the text says that, that she saw them playing, that she saw Ishmael playing with Isaac. Some translations say um, laughing. Uh, whatever was happening there, many commentators interpret it to mean that Ishmael was in fact um, threatening Isaac, that he was mocking Isaac, that he was... In, in, showing a threatening attitude toward Isaac. It's not real sure. It could be that Sarah was threatened simply by the existence of Ishmael because um, Hagar is now her competitor um, and this other child um, is now a slave in the house. But here's the thing, you guys, think about it. It makes sense that she would be afraid for her son. Isaac replaced Ishmael. Ishmael had been the son of promise. He was raised to receive the inheritance. Even though he was a slave's son, he knew he was Abraham's son. And the text indicates that Abraham, in fact, delighted in Ishmael. 
There was a sense in which um, Abraham had a strong uh, fatherly affection and relationship. Now that Isaac was born, Ishmael was just a slave's son with no higher expectations. And many interpreters think that what Sarah saw in that interaction made her believe that Isaac's life could be in danger, that Ishmael might, in fact, be um, intending or at least have an inclination toward harming Isaac so that Ishmael could once again um, be the son that would receive the inheritance. So she took her complaint to Abraham and basically said, you got to cast her out. The slave woman and her son, you got to cast her out. Abraham's torn about it. And so he goes to God in prayer, and God says, I will bless Ishmael. I will take care of Hagar. Cast him out. Send them away. So Abraham submits and does so. Gives them limited food and supplies, sends them out. The story is pretty heartbreaking. They go wandering into the um, desert until they run out of water. Eventually, Hagar lays Ishmael down underneath some, some branches to keep him cool. Um, they are dehydrated, uh, and they expect to die. And she goes off a little distance and just cries out to God in her tears. And God answers her prayer. He basically shows up and says, I will bless you, and I will bless Ishmael. Ishmael shall become a nation. And God miraculously provides water for them in the desert and cares for them. Um, Now, there's a lot going on in this story that we could unpack, a lot about suffering, a lot about social injustice, a lot about um, God's sovereignty over man's mistakes. There's a lot of things here. But what Paul's focusing on are, are not those details. What he's focusing on is how the Jewish leaders interpreted this series of events. See, they would look at this and say, look, there were two sons of Abraham. Those two sons became two people groups, right? When you follow it out, Hagar had Ishmael, and Ishmael became the father of of the Arabic nations. Ishmael became the father of of 12 sons, and those 12 sons became 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes became the Arabic nations, the people that the Jews called Gentiles, a word that simply meant other nations, right? The Jews would look at that and say, look, the other son, the son of promise, Isaac, gave birth to, to Jacob and Esau. And Jacob was renamed Israel, and he had 12 sons, and they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're of the 12 tribes of Israel, which means we're the sons of blessing. They follow the DNA trail. <laughs> and they say, because we're in this line, this racial line, we're the sons of promise. We're the sons of blessing. They're those other nations, the ones outside of the blessing. We're the children of promise. They're not. We are the sons of Isaac, the free son. They are the sons of Ishmael, the slave son. And this story was central to the Jewish identity. That idea that we are the sons of promise. We are the ones that have a right to the, the blessings of God. We are God's people, right? And, and, and when God gave the law to Moses, that simply reinforced it, this idea that this is what makes us unique and holy. And now we keep the law to earn the blessings of the promise, These were basic history. Every Jewish child was raised with awareness of these stories, and it helped shape their identity. Now, Paul is going to step into these stories and challenge the way they understand them. These stories uh, and this understanding to undermine the false teacher's claim and the false teacher's authority, right? Um, Take a look at verses 22 and 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free, the Jewish leaders be like, that's absolutely right. Huh. Verse 23, 
But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. And they're like, of course, absolutely. We're, the, we're, the, uh, we're of that line, right? There were two women, two sons. Now there's two people groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews have the blessing of God. The Gentiles are outside of it unless they become like us. Right? So the Jews had a very keen sense of heritage and place. We have a lineage that entitles us to God's blessing. We have a place of blessing, Jerusalem. We have a land of God's promise. God has blessed us. So if you really want God's blessing, you need to become like us. But Paul's going to take that and turn it on its head. Take a look at verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. In other words, there's a new way to look at this, you guys, or a different way. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Mount Sinai, by the way, is where the law was given, the, uh, the Mosaic law. He's associating it now with slavery. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. What he's saying is, look, the story that you're reading is true, but your understanding is all wrong. Because it's not about physical lineage. It's about two different kinds of covenants. There are two sons, but they represent something much bigger than two lines of a family tree. They represent two ways of living life. They represent two ways of approaching God. Two ways of ultimately trying to get God's blessing in your life. One says, I've got this. Right? That's what happened with Hagar. We're going to get God's blessing in our way. We've got this. We might need a little grace to help us along. We might need a little grace to help us be independent. But God's goal for us is ultimately to be independent, to solve our own problems, to measure up, to work hard, to, to improve ourselves. Right? We're, we need to prove ourselves. We need to, to, to measure up. Right? It's really all about me fixing my own problems, me solving my own dilemmas, me changing my own heart. What he says is allegorically, Hagar and Ishmael represent independence from God, a mindset that ultimately says, I should be and can be independent of God, and that's what he wants from me. To get the blessing of God, I need to measure up. I need to work hard. I need to perform. I will ultimately do it. It's a human solution to a human problem, human effort trying to ultimately earn a blessing that only God can give. It's the way of the flesh, the way of self-effort. It's the way of performance for God. And what he's saying to the false teachers is, you guys, for all of your racial pride, all of your rich heritage, you're children of Hagar. I don't think you can quite understand how much that must have stung (laughs) to men who took so much pride in their racial heritage to suddenly be like, wait a minute, what are you saying? You're saying I'm not blessed by God because I'm a physical descendant of Abraham? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You are children of slavery because you're enslaved to your self-effort, your religious effort to impress God. See, God never intended to anchor his blessing in human DNA. He anchored his blessing in a promise. And by anchoring in a promise, he freed it to anybody who would simply believe the promise. The two women allegorically represent two ways to approach God, one through self-effort and one through faith. And so he goes on and he describes it. 
In verse 26, for the Jerusalem above is free. It's not an earthly promise, it's a heavenly promise. And she is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the one who has, um, than who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. What in the world's going on there? What he's saying, he's quoting Isaiah. And this passage in Isaiah depicts a childless widow sitting outside of the temple begging. She's helpless and hopeless. She can't gain anything from society. Um, She's completely destitute. She has no position, no protection. She has no blessing. She has no inheritance. And society would walk by her and say that she's rejected. She is almost worthless. And God says she's actually in the perfect position to receive a blessing. Because she's helpless, she'll receive a promise. Because she's desperate, she'll accept a rescuer. Like Sarah, who waited so long till it was a point where it was physically impossible for her to have a child, this this desolate widow is given a promise. And what Paul is saying is that spiritually represents us. God gives us a promise of blessing in Christ that you cannot earn. And if you try to earn it, you actually disqualify yourself from receiving it. A promise is only received by faith not by performance. And this is really good news because it means regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of your gender, your pedigree or your performance, your ability to be good, you have equal access to the blessing. You're like the widow that Isaac described in the temple or Isaiah described in the temple, begging, ignored, despised. No children, no husband, but blessed. You're like Sarah who was completely helpless, dependent on the promise of God. You can't solve your own problems. You can't fix your own DNA but God can. So it's about two ways to live, two ways to approach God, two ways to get life's blessing. One says, I've got it. I'll earn it. I'll fix it. I'll be like God. The other says, I've got nothing. I'm completely dependent. I am completely bankrupt. I can't fix myself or my problems, but praise God, he has promised to do it for me. He has promised to do what I am unable to do. I am helpless, but he's promised to rescue me. I need a miracle, but he promised it. So I'll trust. A promise requires one thing, not performance, but trust. You are faithful to your word, so I'll rest in faith. The end result then, as Paul moves to the final stage, is he takes those final words and he applies them to the church, right? In verse uh, 28, but just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that was Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that is Isaac, referring to that time when Ishmael was threatening Isaac. So also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the slave of the same slave woman, so the son of the slave woman will not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right, challenging words, but essentially what he's saying is this. He's saying those false teachers that are coming in and trying to mislead you and enslave you, the ones that are attacking the gospel and persecuting me for preaching a gospel of faith, they are sons of the slave woman and their goal is to enslave you. They want to rob you of the freedom of grace. They want to rob you of the joy of your salvation and they want uh, to ultimately make you like them. They're threatened by the grace you experience and since they're threatened, they attack. So Paul ends his argument with a very clear command, cast them out. 
See, Paul's not talking about casting people out because of their ethnic background or their economic standing or anything else. What he's saying is you need to act like good shepherds. Leaders of the church, act like good shepherds and protect the sheep. You have a responsibility to protect, right? Cast out that mindset of slavery and those who teach it. Those who would enslave you to performance instead of freeing you to grace. So ultimately, he's calling the leaders of the church to act as leaders, to act in, not in self-righteousness, but really in self-protection, protecting the church from false teachers because ultimately they want to destroy the church. Paul states it in a positive way in 5.1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's a very clear call here that if we're going to honor Christ, we have to defend our freedom. We have to walk in the freedom that Christ has given us because he gave his life to set us free. And that freedom, ironically, comes from dependence. That freedom comes from humility. It's not the freedom to fulfill myself, the freedom to do what I want. It is the freedom that says, I trust the giver of the promise so I no longer have to perform and work. Instead, I can rest. So he's telling us not to submit to slavery. All right, three clear applications as we wrap up. I'm going to hit two of them very quickly. The first is leaders are ultimately called to protect the church. That's what's being taking place in this passage. Leaders are called to protect the church. Culturally, um, our, our, our culture doesn't respect authority. We don't like authority. We especially distrust religious authority with good reason. There are too many people that have abused it and used it to ultimately uh, advance their own aims in the name of God. But Good shepherds love the sheep, and that's the number one metaphor used in the New Testament to describe leaders in the church, shepherds. Shepherds love the sheep, and if they love the sheep, they're going to protect the sheep. They're going to they're know the sheep, feed the sheep, care for the sheep, protect the sheep, which means that they're going to take a care, careful look at the people that are having influence in the church. It doesn't mean that we're going to fight over every idea or every doctrine, but it does mean we're willing to fight to protect the gospel of grace, the most important thing. And we're willing to have hard conversations with people. It doesn't mean that we attack their character. It doesn't mean that we get ugly. It means that we're willing to um, have direct con- uh, conversation and to um, call people out if we feel like their motives are ultimately self-serving that's going to undermine the church, right? So leaders are called to protect the church by loving the church well. Second application is a little bit more direct to fathers and a little more apropos for our day as Father's Day is here. Fathers, you're called to protect your home. Um, fathers don't get a ton of respect in our culture. All you have to do is look at the way the media portrays fathers. When, when dudes are fathers on TV, how do they look, right? Um, think about Phil on Modern Family, right? Not a guy that, that inspires a lot of respect or even um, his dad, Jay, right? They're guys that are kind of bumbling, right? Think about Homer on The Simpsons, um, Peter on The Family Guy. When dudes are portrayed as fathers in the media, they're generally endearing, right? We kind of like them like we like pets. We feel a little sorry for them because they're so helpless. Um, But they tend to be bumbling and generally clueless, and it's a really good thing they have their wives around to make sure that they don't make a real mess of things. That's how our culture portrays fathers. Sadly, this media image is too often replicated in our homes. Too many men checking out of their spiritual and emotional responsibility to lead their homes expecting their wives to be the spiritual and emotional leaders in their place. Where men sit passive 
enslaved to their appetites for comfort or entertainment or independence or success, finding every excuse not to be the spiritual and emotional leaders of their home. Men, we were created to lead our homes emotionally and spiritually. There's a quote from Homer in your bulletins, not Homer Simpson, like the original Homer, the the one that came from like ancient world, right? Um, And it says this, it behooves a father to be blameless if he expects his child to be. I didn't put that quote in there because I wanted to call you to perfection. That's a sure pathway to self-condemnation. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, I want to remind you that you need to model what you value, that you need to lead by example. There's no more powerful way to lead your home than to dig into grace. You need to learn what it means to be free. You need to learn what it means to love Jesus in such a way that your heart is freed to joy and and power and freedom. You need to learn what it means to love Jesus so much that it frees you from your love of your own reputation or your own success or your own comfort. You need to model what it means to be undone and remade by grace. You need to learn what it means to open up your heart to receive love. Some of you in self-protection, for whatever reason, have closed off your ability to experience love in some misguided attempt to pursue a masculine ideal that you see modeled in our culture. Grace calls us to vulnerability. Grace calls us to receive the outpouring of the unconditional, unending love of God. We need to open up our hearts to experience that so that we can learn what it means to also openly and freely express love. It is only in being loved by God we will learn what it means to unconditionally love. So dudes who have checked out, that are pursuing comfort or ambition instead of taking your sacred responsibility of being the spiritual and emotional leaders of your home, I want to invite you this morning to repent of your ambition and your self-guided efforts and re-engage grace. Now, some of you haven't tried to check out. You've, you've been trying to be the spiritual leaders of your home. You've been engaged trying to, to call your family to some sort of spiritual thing. But honestly, it's just not going real well. It's really frustrating. And you're finding that it's just not clicking. I want to suggest to you that maybe you're doing it wrong. Sometimes we get, again, this cultural image in our head of what it means to be the spiritual and emotional leader of our home. And we think that means we need to have it all together. We need to be the ones that have all the answers. We need to be the ones that are, that are the perfect models. We need to be the ones that are calling people to high expectations. We need to be the ones that are open up the Bible and we have all the answers. We need to be that guy. And it produces a false front. We're trying to be something we're not really. We're trying to pretend to be something because we think our kids don't really see who we are. We're laboring so hard. You guys, the call of grace is not to work hard, but to rest well. The best gift you can give your family is to stop faking. Stop working. Repent of this false ideal image you have in your head and just be real. Let them know you're broken. Let them know your mistakes appropriately. 
but let them know you're loved and let them know how grace is meeting you in your need. Point them to the God that you love who so desperately loves you. Because their deepest need is not perfection because they can't attain that. Don't give them an image that will simply condemn them for the rest of their lives in the same way it has condemned you. Point them to grace. Grace is so much better because it allows us to be helpless but full of hope, desperately in need but strong in faith, unable to solve our own problems but standing strong in the faith in God who can. And that grace will not only free your heart but the lives, the hearts of your children. The best gift you can give your children is not a life of perfection because you can't do it. The best gift you can give your children is a heart undone by grace that allows you to love your children unconditionally because you will speak to them in a deep and powerful way that God loves them, not because they've earned it, not because they have to perform to receive it, but because he's chosen to and he's paid the price. Lead your family to grace, not religion. Lead your family to grace, not performance. Lead your family to grace. And it will break and remake their hearts even as it does yours. Now, single moms, I don't want to leave you out today. You labor under the dual weight of having to be both mom and dad. And I want you to hear this. There is grace for you. There is a community of faith to support you. Reach out. Don't hide. Don't perform. Be honest and real about your need. And God will meet you in it. God will equip you to be strong. And you need to hear that sometimes the best father a child can have is a strong mother. Not strong in the sense that she has it all together and has all the answers and always knows how to perform, but strong in the sense that she knows how to go to the God who does. Strong in grace. You are walking a very difficult path, but God's grace is greater than your challenge. So I appeal to you to move forward in faith in the God who is faithful. So moms and dads, here's my appeal. Cast out the mindset of slavery. Cast out the performance that locks you in, condemns you or puffs you up. Run to grace. And our singles, um, I appeal to you to protect your hearts. Walk in the freedom that God has given you. Celebrate the freedom that God has given you. Indulge in the grace that God has given you. And as you do, it will change your hearts so radically. And that's really what the rest of this letter is about. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that this morning. As we get into chapters 5 and 6, it's really, man, it is a lab on what it means to be changed, transformed, and set free by grace. And I look forward to digging into it with you. For this morning, I'm going to throw some questions on the screen as we move into our reflection time and ask you to simply pray and do some business with God. First of all, Have you come to realize just how helpless, how dependent you are? Or are you still running from it? 
Scripture tells us that we are completely dependent for our, our life, our health, our very being, that God is the one who even holds us together. He knit us together. He holds us together. He has our future and our past. Do you realize how dependent you are? You can do nothing. Jesus said this to his disciples. You can do nothing apart from me. He wasn't exaggerating. This is a terrifying realization because it means you're not in control. It's a terrifying realization because it means you can't have enough power to guide your life. You can never be a big enough success to measure up. You can never become independent. You are absolutely helpless. In the same way Sarah was to have a child as the widow was to have dignity, you are helpless. That leads to the second question. Have you come to see how incredibly good and big the promises of God are? When Jesus rose from the dead, it was a promise of a new identity a promise of a new future, a promise that he would be strong in all the ways that you are weak. Have you really seen this as good news? And then thirdly, where have you let yourself think? Like a slave instead of the son. Where do you still have that mindset of a slave? I have to perform to be accepted. I have to work to measure up. I have to obey if I'm going to be accepted. Instead of receiving the love of God, as a son of God, covered with the son of God, Jesus himself, as grace, complete, undeserved outpouring of the love of God. You guys, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into a time of response. We're going to share communion in a moment. But for now, let me pray for us. and Let's create some space to let God speak to our hearts. Father God, I thank you that um, you are a God of grace. that what that means is we don't have to, nor can we ever earn what you freely give. But that doesn't stop us from trying, nor does it stop us from condemning ourselves when we don't feel like we measure up or getting prideful when we think we do. Lord, I pray that you'll give us clarity on what it means to fight for real freedom, the kind of freedom that releases us to genuine joy and generosity and life abundant. Father, I pray that you will meet us in our need. You've promised to do so. Increase our faith.